Hello and welcome to the Cat Master Chronicles. We have exciting, interesting and powerful stories from cat owners about well-being. I'm your host, Michelle Adams, the founder of Chatty Cats Care, a professional cat sitting company. Join me as I dive deep into conversation with cat owners about their individual journeys. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. This episode is brought to you by Chatty Cats Care, London's professional cat sitting company. Merry Christmas to one and all. And it's two days until Christmas and oh boy, do we have a treat lined up for you this week. I'm joined by the wonderful chef, restaurateur extraordinaire, Asma Khan. We had an unforgettable conversation at Albright Mayfair about so many different and relevant topics of interest. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Also, listen out for our ads during this show. We have some amazing discounts and free Secret Santa gifts up for grabs. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Cat Mass Day Chronicles. As a huge foodie, I feel honoured to be joined by Asma Khan this week. She's a chef, owner of restaurant Darjeeling Express, cookbook author and beyond. Asma is an inspirational force to be reckoned with. With all her achievements, she finds time to help build up others to achieve their dreams and goals. After listening to a couple of other podcast interviews with Asma, reading articles and watching Asma's episode of Chef's Table on Netflix, I realized how inspirational this lady is. She's also a feminist and supporter of women's rights, and this is reflected through her choices, such as having an all-female kitchen in her restaurant. In a time where women are still fighting for equal pay, especially in the hospitality industry, Asma is a trailblazer, paving the way for more restaurateurs to follow suit. We also chat about Asma's sweet cat bagger and her relationship with cats. I'm so excited for this conversation and excited to find out more about Asma, of course, and her journey. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us today, Asma. I know you have recently opened your Soho restaurant again since the lockdown, which sadly is going to close again tomorrow. So I really appreciate you giving your time to me today. I have briefly introduced you already, but if you'd like to add a bit more about yourself, the restaurant and your cat, that would be great. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. And I think podcasts are great because I think, you know, you hear the person's voice and I think that books are great and I think, you know, film and all of that, but there is something quite uh, emotional hearing someone's voice and, and, and speaking. And so, yes, you've, you've said everything that um, uh, is about me, but also that the restaurant that I had in Soho, I've now moved to Covent Garden and it has only been eight days that we traded and we were supposed to open on the 18th of November but we couldn't because of lockdown. We opened on the 5th of December, and today's our last trading day, which is the 15th. We only did eight days of trading, and it's heartbreaking because I invested my entire life savings uh, in into this because when the lockdown happened, all the banks changed their mind and would not lend me money, and I have financed this restaurant. So this is really 
quite hard to deal with, but I'm trying very hard to look at the positives of it because I can now do a takeaway. I have a deli as well attached to the restaurant. That's good because I was going to ask you, Asma, is there anything we can do as listeners, as supporters to, to help you and your restaurant? Well, if you just go online on DarjeelingExpress.com and you will find the deli menu there, we have now got going to have a very extensive choice, including the Bengali prawn malai curry and chicken and a very old classic recipe from the streets of Calcutta, which is like a chicken wrap called Kati Roll. So we have a really interesting menu because I need people to come in and I need the food to be worth the trip because a lot of people will choose to walk because people are scared to use the tube, which I understand completely. And so we're trying to do our very best to have interesting food from tomorrow, which is Wednesday the 16th. And um, people can even order online and then click and collect. But it is extremely challenging because it's when the government is so unreliable, they, without any warning, pre-Christmas, shut down hospitality, you don't know what's ahead and we don't know when this will all end. They haven't given us a date of when we can open again. Yeah, it, it's it's really difficult, especially it's like, you know, when we we're in the first lockdown and nobody knew when we were going to come out of lockdown. And it can be a very stressful and depressing time for so many people, because I think it's just that not knowing that makes it even worse. But I think now is a good time, especially to visit your restaurant, because we have the Christmas lights out. Yeah. So people are going to be walking around, looking at the lights with their family. And if they want, you know, a beautiful meal <laughs> while they're out and about, then your, your place is definitely the place to be for sure. Thank you very much. And the other thing is that I think that leaving aside me, if you can support anyone in your area, a local restaurant takeaway, please do, because we are all on our knees. So if you can't come into central London, it's fine. You know, anyone that you can support, because really, literally, your order can just lift their spirit. Financially, all of us are in big trouble, but really even a small order gives them the encouragement to go on. It's very hard for a lot of people. I'm going to be okay because of my location, my reputation, and also, you know, I have access to a lot of media coverage, which is not the case with a lot of people. So, you know, yes, please do come to my place as well. But if you can help other people out, please do, because they really need your business. Yeah, 100%. And also leave reviews because reviews help so much. Um, they help build trust. And if you've had an amazing experience for me personally, um, I, I leave reviews all the time um, about restaurants and even you know places that I visit such as theatres and, and different venues because I think it's so important. People are so kind of quick to complain and, and write reviews that are negative, but if you can write positive reviews, then it just makes a whole difference um, for you know a small business or a small local restaurant. So yeah. Um, so I travelled to India as a part of a university programme. I was lucky enough to join a family in a rural village in India. I ate with the family and honestly, it was the best Indian food I had tasted thus far. It was authentic and full of flavour. So I'd really love to chat a bit about your journey growing up in India and what it was like. The food in India is very diverse. If you 
three villages after you know one place you know the way that they actually temper the dal is different so there is no generic indian food and and you would have realized that because you lived in a village and you know in a rural setup because it's all very very local it's very sustainable and you know these are all terms that the west uses now you know no way is sustainable where i grew up they make uh, a vegetable with the peels of potatoes and pumpkin so nothing of any fruit and vegetable is wasted refrigeration only came in recently into india i i left india in 91 but before i left there used to be 8 hours of no power power cuts because we had a huge so anything that was in the fridge if you ate you died basically you got sick so we cooked what we ate and we and we shopped locally in the bazaar there was no supermarket you know literally you ate seasonally and a lot of that has changed in india but the thing is that all our food is linked to festivals to you know celebrations birth death marriages all of that and there's a huge variety the sad thing is that in every indian home you go to it's a woman cooking in every indian restaurant you go to it is a man cooking that man didn't learn from his mother because of the way that our society is so feudal so patriarchal boys were never in the kitchen it was always daughters and they learned in culinary school this is why you have 55 items on a menu how is it that they're making this in a hot country with no fridges you know i have four things on my menu four items on my menu that's it and usually there's one thing runs out and this is all we can make we make fresh we serve fresh leftovers everyone takes home for their kids and the next day we start again our food is not meant to be f- put in a fridge it's not meant to be separated you know into a sauce and a meat the butchering and the kind of you know what they've done to our food is really sad because it was not designed to be fed to be served this way and so i think that you know having an all female kitchen it's not that i chose to have an all female kitchen at the beginning i mean i can easily say that now i needed to have people who knew how to cook who knew how to cook normally you know just the way that i knew not someone who learned in culinary school and you know needed to freeze things and 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 you know refrigerate things i can't do that yeah exactly exactly um it was designed to be fresh and i think with that as well it's it's the whole experience it it was like sitting down with the family as well that kind of created the it's not just about the food that it's just everything around that preparation and um being together it's that togetherness that really i think made it a little bit more special for me personally <laughs> um Something that really resonated with me on your chef's table documentary was when you put your head out of the window on the Darjeeling Express train and shouted out your name and you knew that one day everyone would know your name. I feel like some people really envision their future. I maybe was one of them, I guess, and embody who they're going to become. but then they may face setbacks hardships they get nose they face barriers how did you overcome any barriers that you faced and get to where you wanted to be in life now i wasn't going to lose and the other thing is that i grew up in a very feudal society very patriarchal i'm i'm muslim and you know that was an added layer of tradition and i come from a royal family so there was a lot of stuff that i was not allowed to do and all of these things didn't seem unusual to me 
because I didn't know there's another way to live a life. When I moved to Cambridge, I looked back and I realized that, you know, all of us in some ways were caged and chained. And if I freed myself, I didn't feel I would be free unless I freed someone else. And it was this desire to try and liberate others through any other means that was because I then realized what it meant to be free and meant to be outside the cage. I wasn't going back to the cage, but then I saw people around me. And it was actually, it became kind of like a mission for me that I was going to do something. And yes, I had lots of difficulties. I, I faced huge amounts of opposition. Uh, I, I had a lot of failures. But the one thing that actually drove me when every time a door was closed on my face and every time I fell, I imagined I was clearing the way for someone else to come, who was coming behind me. And I always saw myself as a person who removed the hurdle for someone else. And I visualized overcoming every difficulty. I visualized winning. And I would tell myself that this was not about me. And if you know that this is not about you, it gives you that, at your weakest moment, some hidden strength. When I used to feel that, you know, if I succeed, accented, Muslim, immigrant, you know, much older, in my 40s, I wanted to be the woman that others could see. And I wanted in my lifetime to see people surpass me in my profession. I wanted to clear the path for others to come behind me. Because when I wanted to cook, you didn't see anyone who looked like me in food media, anywhere. No one looked like me. No one talked like me. And I couldn't identify with anyone. And what was interesting is that my food was being cooked. The separation of food from culture, for me, is deeply problematic. Because you can't have my food and you don't take me. You don't put labels on me. You don't call me names. You don't hate people with my color of skin, with my religion, but take my food. I won't let you do it. You need to understand that my food is part of my DNA. And I needed. The, I realized that I had to be in a position of power where I would have a platform where I could talk about this. But even in my wildest dreams, I didn't think I would get Netflix. When actually they emailed me out of the blue, I thought it was a hoax. So I didn't reply for four days. Because, you know, I, they, they wrote to me saying, you know, someone sent them a video of me speaking on the stairs of a mosque to a lot of Muslim women, telling them that, you know, you can cook, you know, do something with your life. And someone sent them that. And they said, you know, who is she? Because, you know, I was not known at all. I had just opened a small restaurant in Soho. And they never had a British chef. But they felt there was something in my story. And the day I actually realized who they were, I was so excited, not because I knew what it would do to me. Actually, didn't I fully understand? Mm -hmm. But I realized that, you know, this is big because there is a, a female of color who is an immigrant, who is, I will get a chance to be, to tell my story and they were great because I said, this is really important, you don't script me. Let me speak, you know, because for me, speaking is never an issue. I can't, if you tell me what to say, I can't say it. 
And they were great. They said, just do what you want. We don't care. We just, you know. I pity the editor because he had like, I think, days and days of stuff to edit. But yeah, it was great. What you just said is so powerful. Like, I'm literally just nodding my head to everything you said. And like having that vision as well is completely powerful because you manifest it. it it becomes true and what is the point of doing all of this if it's not going to be um, valuable or helpful to others yeah. what is the point of starting a business starting a restaurant doing all of this having this platform if you're not going to you know benefit others that's why sometimes I'm a little confused about billionaires because I think you've got so much money what are you doing like who are you helping what are you doing with this i personally could never have all of that money and not do anything about it i just couldn't it's just not within my soul to to be that selfish you know so what you're doing is fantastic and i i knew you before anyway before netflix because i you know i like to listen to podcasts i read articles and i love food as mentioned so yeah you were you're definitely an inspiration to a me lot, well. i mean a lot of people did know me yeah. in in london especially yeah. uh before netflix i think the big difference what happened with netflix is that it, there was an international audience and also people in India got to know about me because I couldn't have opened this restaurant in India because you find women making pakoras in bazaars but you do not find female running restaurants there it's a very traditional society superficially it looks like it's very glamorous and you know it's advanced and you see the city lights but when people go back at home it's a schizophrenic existence the attitude towards their wives their daughters has not changed that much we still have dowry you know women still get burned for not bringing enough dowry we have an abnormal sex ratio with children there are missing girls you know there's massive female infanticide going on in the, in my country people only want to talk about these things it's an uncomfortable subject and i spoke about how my birth was lamented which is something that most girls would never dare do but i thought this is an opportunity for me it was painful for my mother because when she heard me saying it i think it it really upset her but i explained to her i had to say it because no one else would say it but i know she loves me very much so i can say it but if i did still felt that she had discriminated against me i wouldn't have said it but the scars remain the scars of not being loved not being made to feel that you count in a family it's very it's very tough it can do two things to you it can make you basically conform to everything that people want and you know you will then become you know you're somebody's daughter you're somebody's sister then you become someone's wife you become someone's mother but you always link to someone more powerful the other thing that something like this can do is set something deep inside your fire to change the world i think for me that's what it did i i wasn't going to just walk away without leaving enough of an impression on my space around me where i could tell a story but i could also open the doors for other women to feel that they were they could say it too and survive and stand tall and don't feel ashamed of what they did this whole idea of shame in eastern culture is deeply 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 uh, you know damaging because it's always put on the women 
So, you know, from rape to, you know, being born a girl to what happens to your business or anything. Do you love? Yeah, everything. It's always about shame is something that is so easily dumped on women. And then we carry that burden. And I, my attitude is put it down and set it on fire. Because this idea that everyone lumps shame on you, it's not your problem. It's their problem, not yours. This week, we are excited to have teamed up with MyBeautyWorld.net, an e-commerce company with an eco-friendly ethos. I don't know about you, but I'm fed up of buying from big brands who use unnatural ingredients. If you're like me and have sensitive skin, the last thing you need is for a rash to appear on your face or body. My Beauty World are focused on only working with natural and organic brands to bring a wide offering for all people. My favourite part of their ethos is that they are completely cruelty-free and do not offer any animal-tested products or ingredients. They have offered our listeners an exclusive discount this week. I've already purchased so many gifts on here for my family and friends. So at the checkout, use ChattyCat15 for a discount. If you get your orders in soon, you may also be eligible to receive a free secret Santa gift. We also have another exclusive Christmas offer for you this week. We've also teamed up with the London Physio. We know this year hasn't been great for our mental or physical health and the tedious NHS referral waiting time could take months. You don't need to suffer anymore. If you book a session with the London Physio, receive a brilliant discount of all sessions by typing in Chatty Cats, capital letters, 10. That's Chatty Cats 10 at the checkout. We also have an exclusive interview with the founder, Joy Agude, next week on this very podcast. So stay tuned in for more info. When a table sits down and the food is served to them, at least eight people have touched that plate, starting with the kitchen porter who's washed the plates and who will wash the plates when they finish. There is very little, little acknowledgement of these hidden people who are contributing. The chef walks around like the god who has created this. And I think that is what really bothered me, that if people claimed, and this happens to women all the time in any case, but it was happening to men and women in kitchens where the credit is taken to from one person, there's a disproportionate paycheck of what the head chef gets, the sous chef gets, and invariably the kitchen porter, and in London most of them are black, get paid pittance. The hardest work is there. In my kitchen, my kitchen porter and me are on the same wage because I will pay him what I think I'm worth as well. So when I work in the kitchen, we get paid exactly the same. And this, and this makes me feel I am valuable. Because I see that he's working so much harder, mm -hmm. physically working harder. How is it that my touch and my little bit of contribution stirring a pot is more valuable financially than someone who's scrubbing a pot? It's deeply, it's a, this hierarchical, you yes. know, military style, you know, structures in, in kitchens. You're not going to war. This whole idea of, you know, everyone has this attitude, they're in mortal combat, you know, everyone is, you know, killing themselves, working. It's 
horrible. If that, if a male chef touched a woman outside the kitchen, he'd be in jail. And I know this because I'm a lawyer. But in the kitchen, somehow it is justified as stress. If you are so stressed, get the hell out of the kitchen. Get out of the fire because you can't deal with it. You cannot justify touching a woman without her consent or being abusive because of pressure of the kitchen. You don't belong in the kitchen. But somehow there hasn't been voices raised. And not just voices raised by men, by females. Female chefs who have had Michelin stars have been silent because they closed ranks with the top chefs. They see themselves as chefs. I'm sorry, you are a woman too. And you need to raise a voice when bullying happens. Every time something happens, I'm the only one who speaks up. Also, I'm the outsider. I don't owe anyone anything. I'm not afraid. And even if I did, I would break the links. I would speak out. I cannot breathe. I cannot live if I know I kept silent. Because that would actually kill me from within. If I knew that I kept silent because I chose, you know, money or power or friendship or any kind of other motive over truth. And it's not the way I could live a life, but I need people to understand because, you know, I, I know now with chef, you know with Chef's Table and Netflix, I'm on a platform, I go on stage, but what I see when I'm on stage are all the women who will not get on stage. I have to be the voice of the voiceless. I need to be their voice. I need them to know I speak for them. I'm the face of every woman who's been marginalized, who's been made to feel they don't count, who's not been loved, who's not been given any credit. But today, you know, I am considered to be someone who's important, who's powerful. And I just want women to just look at this. You know, in my culture, I'm 51. They consider you to be in the autumn of your life, you know. 51, you're like, you know, and I tell a lot of people, this is the spring of my life. Mm -hmm. You do not tell me, you know, that I can't start now. I can be anything I want to be. But bias, especially in in your South Asian culture, is, you know, if you're 50, you know, definitely you, you've passed it. In your 40s already, and God forbid, if you're, like, don't, if you're not married, or you don't have kids, then it's even worse. This whole idea that, you know, if you have the suit attached to you and the suitable boy, suddenly you're seen as being credible. But irrespective of achievements that you've made, people will ask you, are you married? Have you had children? Mm-hmm. And you think, you know, you know, I might be a brain surgeon, but still people ask these stupid questions. <laughs> you know, And they, they, this doesn't impress them. The fact that I might be married to some dodo and have kids, you know. Why is that so important? So there are many levels at which I'm trying to have conversations. I don't want to be this shrill, shrieky, you know, and I know you said feminist in the beginning of the introduction. I don't even call myself that. I, you know, I don't label myself anything. And I also think as a woman of a Muslim background uh, who's an immigrant, dark-skinned, I think a lot of white feminists don't get me. And this is a huge issue because I think that feminism is very... uh, there's There's a kind of monotone to what is considered to be a feminist. And I walk into a room and I say I don't drink alcohol and everyone's like, oh, you're a practicing Muslim. And I think, you know, how is that your problem? The fact that I do not drink alcohol, you know, 
I don't have to burn everything in my own culture to feel I can speak up about progressive issues. But the bias and the prejudice is so so deep that it's almost like, you know, uh, you know, you should not be talking about color, you should not be talking about race. Everybody should be talking about it. Everybody. Because it matters. And if you keep silent, you're colluding. You're on the wrong side. And history will judge you for your silence. 100%. And I think that's what you want to be remembered for. That's the legacy that you want to take with you, that, that you are the person who spoke up. And this is why one of the reasons I started the podcast as well, because, of course, I have a cat sitting company and I wanted it to be about pets, but I also really feel strongly about all of these topics that we're speaking about now. And um, I believe that it's important that we're having these conversations and they're being listened to by a wide range of audiences. Um, and I completely agree with you about the, the feminist term and who it's really for. As, as a mixed race person um, who attended a predominantly white um, conservatoire university, I felt like when I walked into feminist groups, I literally saw nobody like me. And their views were very different to what I had. But I believe that although I don't believe in labels, you can make that whatever you want it to be, you know? Yeah, and I think that, I think labels are, are deeply damaging. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, like, you know, I always say there's no box big enough, not just because I'm so overweight, but there's no box big enough in which you can put me. You know, I think that you can't, you should not label women. And it's not just that women also label themselves. Yeah. That's the damaging thing. When you talk to young girls, I keep telling them, you're not your dress size. You're not your father's bank account. You are not how many followers you have on social media. You are, you know, the biggest identity. You show, your claim to fame should be, whose life did you change? But it's very hard because you're going against the tide. Everybody sees their, you know, their status as the number of Instagram followers they have. That's really sad. Yeah, it's sad and damaging, especially for this younger generation where they are so dependent, yeah. so dependent on social media. And, the and this kind of affirmation that social media gives them, it's also deeply damaging. I mean, just go out and try and make a difference. Yeah, and have conversations face to face because it's so different from having a chat with someone online or via Zoom, which of course all of us are kind of doing at the moment, but it's, there's something different about these face-to-face interactions that feels so genuine and um, real. As mentioned, I'm a huge foodie. I literally experience food with every part of my body and soul. But when I dine in a restaurant, I want the whole experience. Yes, food is a huge part of it, but I also find the service, ambiance, and general vibe is such an important part of the whole experience as well. Do you believe this to be true? And what do you do in your restaurant to allow your guests to be fully immersed in the whole experience? I think I didn't design the restaurant to be a space that looked contrived. Almost everybody, even those who've never been to that part of the world, feel it's a kind of sense of homecoming. And I've, I've, des- I've you know, designed a lot of the stuff in the restaurant. 
It's very low-key, it's very warm, and it's very welcoming. Yes, it's, I agree with you. I think the vibe is very important. The music is my mother's playlist, old vintage Bollywood songs. And, uh, it's, and I only work with a team where people understand you've got to be compassionate. You need to look, you know, you need to look at people in the eye. And, you know, it's very hard now with masks. You know, first three days of service, my eyelashes were hurting because I was smiling so much with my eyes. I was thinking, oh my God, everything <laughs> aches. Because I really, you know, wanted pe people to know that I was smiling. And I, I felt that they couldn't see it. And, uh, it's, it is very important. And I've, I've said this in a recent interview I did where, you know, I don't want to know how many Michelin stars a restaurant has. I want to know how they treat their staff. I want to know the diversity in their workforce. Not that, you know, they have five people who are of mixed race or, or color, but they are all at the lower end. There's, I want to know higher up decision makers. Who are the people who are making decisions? There's a lot of self-selection that happens in restaurants. They radiate and they kind of have this aura, which is very male. They're, you don't walk into a restaurant and have this female vibe. We need to reclaim these spaces. And, you know, and when restaurants have tried to do this kind of feminine bath, it's laughable because it's so obviously designed. And design does show. I have nothing against something that is, you know, designed to look like a certain way. But there needs to be a soul. And that sometimes is missing. And I think that you really need to have an ethos of feminism. I think you need to have, you know, we are the givers, the healers, the feeders. In centuries we've done this, you know. And, you know, all our grandmothers have, you know, have you have memories of being fed from grandparents houses and grandmothers and i think that food is not this you know little piece of fluff and puff and you know something reduced and edible flowers on top we've we've made our food into something that's a picture but there's no soul there's no soul it needs to be completely authentic i think yeah you know often people have issues about what is, you know, the word authentic, you know, I think this is very hard to define. The main thing is that it should be what is meaningful to you. It's very important that you cook food that is meaningful. And that is something that the person who's eating the food will sense immediately. Yeah, and that's the thing that, you know, don't cook to impress. Cook because you love it. There's passion. And that's very important that that radiates through. It will radiate through, absolutely. You know, I used to tell my mother that, you know, even when the way she buttered my toast, every time I go home, every edge she's buttered. She takes that time to slowly butter. It's these things that we just take for granted. But now that I don't see her often, and I have not seen her now for a year because of the pandemic, you know, the fact that she made sure that till the edges the butter went, this is a little reflection of affection. And, you know, that's all we need to do. Yeah. 100% because even when I cook for my partner sometimes he says you know you made this with love you can taste it you can taste the love and I know when I put my love into the food I know and I know you can tell the difference of when something is rushed or when someone has really taken their time with everything on that plate and um, yeah it's, it's beautiful it's like art so what is your favorite dish to cook in your restaurant and can you tell us a bit about the story behind it at all I know that people might think this is because they've, they saw it on Netflix but then I chose to cook biryani because I think 
For me, that is my favorite dish to cook, also favorite dish to eat. I could eat it every day. But it's a very difficult dish to make and it's a lot of it is just driven on instinct because you can't actually see what's happening. Once you seal it, it cooks and you can't do anything to it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I now have a biryani tasting menu in my restaurant. Of course, today is my last day for this year. We're going into lockdown. And uh, yeah, so I, I think definitely that I love cooking that because it was always I associate that with very big family gatherings because biryani was made every time the family got together for a wedding or someone was getting married some or anything and always all about celebration so maybe I associated being with loved ones and that food so just the link of being with people you love and that food that is something quite sacred to me and I, I love cooking it. I hope my son will learn how to cook it because these recipes can't be written. You need to just intuitively know how to make it. So I hope he does because at the moment in my family, I'm the only one who knows how to make it. Okay. Because even my mother doesn't know how to make it. He needs to start teaching them now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, he's, he's now coming back to work in the restaurant now because I can't afford staff. I told him, very good, we'll have child labor. He's 21. I said, come in and come to help me start, start working. So, yeah, he's going to cook with me. And I think that, you know, he I think he knows how to, how to do it because he's watched me do it so many times. Yeah, exactly. I can imagine. I noticed in your kitchen on Chef's Table, of course, you singing together with your team and it looks like such a happy atmosphere. I used to work in hospitality as a waitress at different events, but I always remember feeling really crap after a chef would shout or swear at me. And we touched on this earlier as well, just for just a small mistake. And honestly, like I, I hated it so much. And I honestly, I honestly felt like crying sometimes. Why do you think chefs have this attitude towards the waiting staff or their colleagues? Like I know we said earlier, you know, you can't blame it on the pressure of the kitchen because that's not an ex- that's not an acceptable excuse anymore. Because there's no consequence to being cruel. And I blame owners. I'm a restaurant owner myself. I think the buck stops with us. If you have people who are aggressive and abusive and nasty, you need to remove them. But the problem is that everyone is so terrified because they think the chef is the, is the be-all and end-all of everything. The power structure is set up in such a bad way that they know if they sack you, or you walk off because you're upset, they'll find someone else to replace you. But they feel that they can't replace the chef. That attitude, the fact that they are untouchable, is bringing out the worst in chefs. Unfortunately, they bring out the worst in male chefs. The idea that you're not touchable, that you will not, there's no consequences to how you behave. It's not that there's no time when I don't feel like shouting. Sometimes, you know, I do, but I don't because I know that it's not going to help the situation. The situation is terrible, and we, you know, like yesterday, you know, my, my dumb waiter, they loaded everything on my dumb waiter. The string broke. It's a huge financial cost, and I know the person who did it, but I didn't even ask that, you know, who loaded it. It's an old building, so this happened. And, you know, we had to move on, you know. We had to find a way to open it, get all the stuff out, because it, this is just debilitating to have someone shouting. But... It's the easiest thing. It's the easiest thing is to shout. And there is a kind of blank check given to chefs that they can shout because they know there's no consequence. 
I'd love to see prosecutions. I'd love to see criminal records. Honestly, I think this is what we really need in hospitality. You people have thrown pans, knives, hot oil on staff. If this is not assault, what is? And this is incredible that you hear stories. I have had someone recently come to me and show me. I mean, the chefs hit her. She's she's much she's much slighter and much you know tinier than you. He hit her so hard, it was purple, the mark on her back. And she said, you know, oh, I have to hide this from my mother because she won't let me. I said, is this the only concern you have that your mother might see it? She didn't do it. She didn't say anything. Can you and that and I know because she's as dark skinned as me. My God, you've got to hit me really hard to get that. You know, even bruising, I don't bruise. You know, because if you're dark skinned, you don't bruise so easily. The fact that he left a purple mark on her back, and these are all silent. Everyone is silent because very often this whole idea that suck it up, this is how you know you will move up in life. The whole concept that bullying works in kitchens, that you suck it up and you don't whinge and, you know, get out of the kitchen if you can't deal. Get the chef out first. Get the chef the hell out of the kitchen first because that is the problem. But that doesn't happen. I think I'm not very popular. I have rattled a lot of cages. But, you know, I'm unafraid because it's, you know, in my accent, you can hear, I'm from the East and the West. I understand Eastern patriarchy. It's very obvious. Girls don't do this. Women don't do this. Don't show your legs. Cover your this. You know, don't go and talk to a boy. That person is of different culture. Don't talk to him. This is the kind of stuff that's said to you openly. You're told the rules. In the West, it is so cleverly done. You get paid less. There is bullying. You know, you're sidelined. You're kept out of email things. And women hit the glass ceiling and you don't find them in the higher echelons of power anywhere. We are exactly in the same position. In the East or in the West, we are not seen as equal. And I think a lot of Western women have not actually understood this. The society is not equal. And the, and the whole way that the that structure of power is set up, it is to keep women behind perpetually. Especially women of color. Yes, of course. I mean, if you have, that's an added added dimension. When you when when you are uh, when you're a woman of color, uh, if you're an immigrant, if you don't fit into the norm, your your body shape is different. Uh, you speak differently, uh, and you know all of those issues are just further handicaps to just the fact that you're gender, that you're female, and there isn't enough conversation happening with women and solidarity with other women. So, you know, women in banking, women in marketing, women in law, hospitality, we need to find a way to network and to connect up because we are all finding, we all have the same issue. You know, just because you're, you know, and I know this, I'm a lawyer. I know how in legal firms there's an issue. You know, who gets the best cases, who gets paid more, you know, and I'll never forget, I was, you know, working as a lawyer and a barrister told me, that I don't want you to work on this case because you it's going to undermine the credibility of the defendant because the defendant and you look the same. And I was like, whoa. So I wasn't allowed in because he said it's going to undermine the case. And this was many years ago. I don't think things have changed that much. They haven't. But then not many people were saying it. 
and I'm not afraid. Good. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. <laughs> Say it louder. <laughs> I know this is quite a general question and I'm sure there's many answers that you have, but what is the best part of what you do? What do you love the most about what you do and why? I think it is setting someone free. When they didn't understand they were in chains, they didn't understand they were in cages. And this is across every culture, every skin color, every background and age. Too many of these restrictions women put on themselves. The limitations and the lack of confidence is internal. And you know, one of the you know, I have of course an all female staff, but I also mentor a lot of people. One of the things I'm going to be doing when all of this drama is over is opening a mentoring school in my Delhi in the evening. This is not to teach people how to cook or not to teach them how to be sommeliers, but to teach them how to lead. We need more female leaders because they will then, you know, and the thing is that if you are not invited to the table, pull a chair and sit down. And this is what I want to do. And I also, I'm going to fund this myself, although now it's a bit hard because money is completely dried up. I'm not taking money from anyone because I don't want to be told what to do. And this frees me to set up this mentoring school. This was the reason why Vogue picked me in the top 25 women yeah. of 2020. This was this whole thing of the mentoring school. We desperately need it. Yes. I don't want to teach people. I just want to teach women how to lead. You lead, pull your chair on the table, make the decisions, and then stand by other women. We have another problem. A lot of women who've made it throw the ladder away and are not supportive to other women. It's problematic. I think this is a generational thing. I think this next, we have an opportunity. You know, women now can make a difference. They can show solidarity with other women, stand by their female colleagues and male colleagues who are being victimized. We need to build an alliance with men as well and have this conversation. This is not a war between men and women. I was given this place in Covent Garden. It's a great two listed building. It's massive by four men in suits. Four white men sat down and I told them, rise above your prejudice. Do one thing that will transform my life, will transform your life. On my opening night, they were sitting there in tears. I had Sadi Khan who came in on my opening night. And they said, I told them, how does this make you feel that you decided to take a risk and give a place like this to me? You can now do this to other people. Just transform their lives. When you are powerful, lift other people up, open doors for them. It doesn't take away from your right or your you know, ability to enjoy life. It takes away very little, but I can guarantee to you. And you know, you don't need to go to a refugee camp or set up restaurants. You don't need to do something dramatic. Just start with your own family, start with your friends. Just let them lean on you because you are strong. Carry them across whatever they're going through. I don't think women do it enough. I think we really need to look after our own first. It's really kind of a plea to everyone who's listening to this that, you know, don't go too far. Don't have to cross the oceans. You don't need to be do anything complicated. It doesn't need to cost you money. It just needs to cost you time. Give people time. Give them compassion. Give them some love. You will transform their life and you can't imagine the feeling when you see someone free and you played a part in it. It's, it's more valuable than money. 
exactly exactly 100 oh my goodness i'm literally getting goosebumps i would love to do that for so many people if i could like and i try to do small things now but like if i can have the impact that you have oh my goodness like if i die tomorrow i'll be happy knowing that i've done something like that 100 it's, it's very important to not waste your life because every day is a gift and you know that's not why you weren't born to crawl through life and you were also not born to not help other people there's a reason why you're here you're here to leave a legacy of change and hope for others otherwise what's the point you're not taking your money to your grave exactly exactly um so now moving on to my favorite part of the show which is about pets so can you tell us more about your life and experience with pets and animals i had a lot of cats when i was in <laughs> india uh, most of them were strays that came in so they were any time i had around 14 cats you know of different age kittens and you know, older cats cats that had been you know hit by cars you know maimed what are lame you know we, we used to always have cats and i really desperately wanted a cat for a long time uh, when i moved to this country and my husband was very against the idea eventually it took me we've been married almost 30 years uh, it took me all this time to convince him to get a cat so finally the cat is now 6 months old i've had him for almost 5 months and he's um, a a kind of mix you know tiffany which is a royal burmese asian burmese extremely adorable cat and it's been life changing having him and i'm sadly not his favorite person yes i was when i initially came in but after an incident in the house he decided to take to pick on the person who rescued him and so i'm not his favorite person i still forgive him for that because he is my favorite person <laughs> and what is it about cats that you love so much because you spoke to me before um the podcast about all of those cats that you yeah. looked after in india i think i think the there is a kind of almost like a communication it you sense that they understand you they know you sense that they know when you're upset and and i i just love the softness when a cat is close to you it's so reassuring and you know touch as we should we all know now after the pandemic the touch and the embrace of people on your skin there's something very comforting and to have cats and you know my cats would always sit on my lap you know and when i was studying they were always there it just made you feel you were not alone all the time there was you know of course you know i grew up in a huge family with lots of people around but the cat touching you all the time kind of felt really reassuring and and also i think that you know the expression you try to understand them and you see that they're trying to understand you too and you know i think cats are so intelligent and they they're almost you know human like in their kind of instinct in the way they react to things yeah yeah so it's i i completely adore cats um so would you say that baga cuz i'm guessing was it during the lockdown that yeah. you yeah. yeah so would you say that he's kind of brought like a sense of happiness and well-being in your life absolutely i think that you know i i i got him because you know i felt i initially thought i'd get him because my son was stuck you know was struggling with uh, you know online teaching 
was feeling quite disconnected and he's 16 and i thought okay this might be a good idea i managed to convince my husband got baga in july so you know just when i decided up you know 4th of july restaurants were being allowed to open and i decided i wasn't going to go back to the soho restaurant and i thought you know i'll be here to help the cats settle in so just pretty much you know on a on a kind of desire to to make my son feel less lonely and you know i also felt that you know i was really grieving it was like a bereavement you know knowing that i couldn't have the restaurant i didn't know what was going to happen to me next i went and got bagha which uh, is in bengali uh, tiger and he's a very stripy he's a stripy cat so not yellow gray shades of gray and blue but uh, and he was very untiger like when we got him initially extremely terrified and uh, very shy and was i was like oh my god have i made a mistake you know the cat was so scared uh, you know hid a lot and i kept reading on google that this is quite normal that they are it, they find it the change is quite traumatic but still i felt quite upset the first few weeks because he was quite scared and then eventually he got okay yeah yeah and i'm sure he's um very happy in your home at the moment so that's so sweet do you have any has he done any like funny things or do you have any heartwarming stories of when he's like kind of been there or has he like i don't know what's his personality like he is uh very unusual because he follows my husband relentlessly and the moment he hears a Skype call he has to be there in front of the camera and my husband's a professor and he's having to give lectures and we can't get ourselves to lock him up because then he weeps and wails outside the door so he's quite a character so it's very embarrassing because you know he causes havoc you know and i see him stop lecturing with this cat running around but he can't bring it bring himself to lock the cat out because it's just impossible and uh, so here yeah, he's one of this way but there's a story about baga which is you know really an indication of what he's now a few days after he came i was half asleep and i saw him fall into a crack in the fireplace and he fell down three floors and he was just one one and a half year months old and it was 3 o'clock in the morning and we thought of calling the fire brigade we didn't know what to do somehow he managed to climb up in that dark and mewed and then kept jumping from within to that crack my husband pushed his hand in managed to grab him and bring him in till that point baga and i were like bonded completely but when my husband pulled him out and baga has not left my husband's side my husband who bitterly opposed having the cat but it was a transformation for baga he was so committed so he literally sleeps on my husband's head and waits outside while he's having a shower and when my husband goes away he sits outside that door till he you know the whole day he will wait outside the front door waiting for him to return so it's a kind of and that was a transformation because i think he really thought he wasn't going to make it and i was in tears you know because i thought this is it you know not going to be able to get him out and he was deep in the chimney we didn't even know how it's an old house we didn't even know how the chimney worked and uh, but he climbed up and kept jumping and you were hearing him miss and fall and miss and fall he kept trying to leap in through that little crack and he got out 
It's just incredible. And that's, you know, then I realized, no, he is the tiger. Absolutely. He sounds like you, Asma. <laughs> that determination. <laughs> yes, possibly. I, the thing is that he really, it was incredible because, you know, you, you can barely put your hands through that gap. And my husband just put out his hand, but he managed to jump into his hand. The fact that he was a month and a half old and worked out that this was how he was going to get out. It's, uh, yeah, it was deeply inspiring. I was so stunned. But, you know, for all of us who feel that there's a lot of darkness around, I hope the story also inspires you because it tells you that, but you need to make that jump. There is light, but the effort has to come from within. You can, only you can help yourself and only you can believe in yourself. Nobody will believe you if you don't believe yourself. And this lack of confidence, a feeling that you don't deserve to be here, imposter syndrome, set all of this aside. You really need to make that jump yourself. And then the world will listen to you. The world will move aside to create that space for you. If you don't think you belong somewhere, you'll never get there. You need to believe that you have the right to be where you are. And that's transformation. 100%. I think we all need Bagger's determination yeah. to work our way out of the hole that's so easy to fall into, especially during times like this, yeah. as you yeah. mentioned, Asma. Lastly, if the listeners want to find out a bit more about you or online, where can they find that? your restaurant, for example? Can you tell us? Yes, I think the easiest thing is if you Google Darjeeling Express, because on the website we have all the information about the restaurant, the food, and if you want to know a bit about me, if you haven't seen Netflix, please do watch it. Uh, a lot of people see me on the street and say, oh, you talk just like you did in Netflix. I was thinking, yes, I wasn't acting. Here's what I am. And uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's season six and it's episode three. But I think that, you know, what is really interesting for people, if they actually understand that, you know, don't see Indian food as cheap and cheerful. It smacks of racism. You know, we're a very kind of complex, elevated, layered cuisine. And, you know, so try and also find out about my culture. Because I think that people, a lot of hatred and prejudice comes from ignorance. So, yes, you know, I'm here, you know, and I'm always, you know, in the Delhi, I'm there. If you come in and ask for me, I'm always there. I chat to people a lot. But also, you know, educate yourself on other people. Because ignorance is what holds us all back. And, you know, I'm trying all the time to learn new things about other people, to try and educate myself. So, you know, I, I symbolize every woman who is from another culture. You know, we're all very similar. And I understand that all of us are bearing a cross which we can't see. So there's a lot of similarities between us. And I think that beyond looking at, you know, just women, uh, I think that, you know, food is a great way to build bridges. So go eat some, go and eat with someone when you can, when it's safe. Definitely. I agree with that 100%. So again, thank you so, so, so much for this conversation. It's been like amazing and so inspiring and I've really, really enjoyed it. So thank you as well. Thank you very much. You're welcome.